Hello, everyone. Welcome to No Acronyms Allowed, a no-holds-barred public health dialogue where we simplify healthcare by ensuring there are no acronyms allowed. Today, we are speaking with Erica Tavares, the Senior Director of U.S. Programs and Advancement with International Medical Corps. We're talking to her today about their services and partnerships around the world that move communities dealing with conflict, disaster, and disease from relief to self-reliance. So I'll get us kicked off. Erica, thank you for joining Stephen and I on our uh, podcast. Uh, we appreciate you uh, while you're traveling, getting up and <laughs> and uh, making yourself available to us. So a lot of folks out there don't realize that organizations uh, like community health centers have a lot of partners that they work with, especially during times of emergency need. And obviously the International Medical Corps is one of those organizations. So can you tell us a little bit about your organization and, and what it is that you guys do? Thank you so much for, for having me here today. We're uh, delighted to, to be a part of this conversation and really looking forward to it. Uh, International Medical Corps is a global first responder. We have nearly 40 years of experience helping to respond to the world's largest disasters, uh, crises, and emergencies with a specific healthcare response. So since 1984, we've delivered over $4 billion in services in some 80 countries around the world. Uh, we've got a phenomenal team. We have about 8,500 staff people, uh, well over 90% of whom live in the countries where, where we work and, and provide services within their very own communities. Uh, over the last several years, you know, we, we've, we've had questions about, you know, is International Medical Corps in the U.S. and, and what do we do here? And, and we've really um, increased our footprint over the last several years. You know, I think uh, it's, um, you know, no secret that the COVID-19 uh, outbreak really exposed some of the U.S.'s challenges in our healthcare system. And based on what we've seen, you know, we've increased our work here, not only responding to disasters, uh, which we've been doing for, for decades here in the U.S., but also really looking at how we can help fill gaps um, and, and increase people's access to, to healthcare here at home. So, Erica, that, yeah, when you say disaster, so what, what, is that, what sure. does that mean? How would you define disaster from your perspective? It's a great question. Uh, we define disasters here in really the broadest sense of the word. So we are certainly looking at things like natural disasters here in the U.S. We respond to, to hurricanes, to wildfires, to tornadoes. Uh, we also look at, at disease outbreaks. Again, COVID-19 was one of our largest global uh, responses that the organization has ever undertaken. We responded all, all around the world. Uh, but we also work in crisis and conflict situations. Uh, we work in places like Ukraine, where we have one of our largest responses right now, where we're delivering healthcare and training frontline responders uh, on how they can deliver healthcare in, in a conflict setting. Uh, we work in places like Sudan, where there's been a recent violent outbreak, uh, places like Syria, where there's been ongoing conflict. Um, so we really look at this in, in the broadest sense. Um, and we also work in other health emergencies as well. You know, one of the uh, largest challenges facing the world right now is is the global food shortage and nutrition crisis and you know working in the horn of africa is is one of our largest teams where we're really looking to see how we can help keep people healthy and so do you like um this is so interesting to me because i mm -hmm. I, I think like like it, it's like a i don't know it's, it feels like superman right like like <laughs> you're going into these crazy situations and doing mm -hmm. 
what's already crazy to do, right? Already difficult to do healthcare in, in any fashion. So mm-hmm. like if you go into um so selfishly, uh, like I'm in based in Fort Myers. So Hurricane sure. Ian was was um you know our big thing over the last uh, from last fall. So are you like, you're bringing in doctors and providers and nurses, mm-hmm. or are you working like on the ground with those that are already there and, and providing the infrastructure for them? Um, or is it a little bit of both? Like, like who, who is actually delivering in these disaster areas, the, the healthcare response? Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question and it is it is a little bit of both you know we are very cognizant of the fact that that the first responders to any disaster whether it's you know hurricane ian in fort myers or the the recent earthquake in turkey and syria are the people on the ground they're the people who live there who have to keep themselves and their families safe they're the frontline healthcare workers you know who may be responding and may see uh, people coming to to get services. It's other types of first responders, and so you know we really look at ourselves as um, listeners. We also see ourselves as as doers, right? We work with communities to figure out what is it that this community needs right now to provide the best possible healthcare uh, in the aftermath of a disaster or in the face of an ongoing crisis. Um, and so, in Hurricane Ian, we worked really closely with uh, the Florida Department of Health. Uh, we deployed a mobile team uh, to, um, you know, to the region that was most affected to those communities. And in that case, we did bring in volunteer doctors. We have a great network of volunteer medical professionals who will respond with us when the situation demands it and we need that surge. But our goal is always to really work with communities and figure out what the specific gaps are and how we can help them do their jobs better. Um, in the U.S., it may mean working with community health clinics to help them recover, to get, uh, to to repair infrastructure, to to get additional vehicles so they can reach patients who may not be able to make it in. Uh, globally, it may mean delivering supplies. A lot of what we do is deliver uh, things, sub- medical supplies and devices and pharmaceuticals so that people can continue to, to access care. So it really depends on what the need is and what the situation sure. uh, demands. Um, you know, but we really see ourselves as, as helping to accelerate the response that's already there. So Erica, you had mentioned you have um, a volunteer network of providers but if someone yes. was interested in joining your team or joining the network mm-hmm. uh, of providers, what would they have to do to become a member of your organization? Sure. Uh, we are always looking for, for volunteer medical providers. Uh, so it's a, it's, we would love to have, to have more individuals who are interested. Uh, we do have an opportunity to apply for our volunteer roster on our website. If you go to internationalmedicalcore.org. Um, and click on volunteer or work with us, there's opportunities to apply. If someone is selected as a potential volunteer, uh, we do have a training program that they go through. It's largely online. It takes about 15 hours. Uh, but what it is, is a training around uh, humanitarian response and coordination. Uh, it's training around safety and it's training around what uh, international and national disaster response looks like. Um, and so they'll complete that training program. They're they're interviewed with members of our emergency response teams uh, to you know learn more about who we are and what we do. And then um, if they're interested and and you know make it onto our roster, um, when there is a disaster, we do reach out and we look for people who are are you know willing and interested in volunteering, um, and they have the opportunity to to go and respond with us. 
Um, we are primarily looking for medical professionals at all levels, um, you know, LVNs, nurses, uh, paramedics, doctors, physicians, physician assistants. That's that's mostly what we need in that kind of um, immediate response setting. Now, you had mentioned uh, previously 90 percent of your mm -hmm. volunteers or, or staff live in the countries they serve. So what kind yeah. of commitment is that for them? Are they, do they, you, you'd mentioned providers and nurses being your primary mm -hmm. target right now for workforce. So are mm -hmm. these individuals living in these countries still doing their jobs and then they're just waiting to be contacted through the network? Should there be a need or, or what kind of commitment do they mm -hmm. have to give to, to your organization? Mm -hmm. right. um, in, in non-emergency times or in the absence of what we call a, a rapid onset emergency, you know, an earthquake or or a hurricane, for example, um, we're providing ongoing healthcare services. We're we're working to fill gaps, and so the staff, the eighty five hundred staff that work for us globally, some are medical providers, but they're also uh, logisticians. They're also working to get medical supplies uh, in country and and move our people around. They are experts in in clean water and nutrition and mental health. Mental health is a big part of what we what we do, and they're providing those services within communities or their training uh, Ministry of Health staff in some of the countries where we work or, or local organization staff and how they can provide services. So even in the absence of a, of a disaster, um, something that would, would be on the front pages of the news, we're always working to provide healthcare and health services. And so for them, it's a full-time job. Um, you know, that, that staff, those 8,500 people are working for us full-time, uh, you know, in the 30 countries where we currently have operations. So that leads me to the next question. How, how do mm -hmm. you fund your operations? How, what, how do you get that type of resource in so that you can manage these supplies mm -hmm. and the logistics and staffing and, and need? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Yada. It's, it's a big lift. There's certainly no shortage of need. Um, we get funding from a variety of sources. We get funding from the U.S. government. We get funding from other international governments, uh, U.K., French governments, um, other organizations like uh, the United Nations. Um, but we also get funding from individuals. We have uh, thousands and thousands of individuals, particularly here in the U.S., um, that provide donations. Uh, you know, when there's a disaster, we're certainly out there looking for to help mobilize resources and to fundraise and, and people can give through us. Um, and so that's certainly a big, big part of, of, of who supports the organization. And we also work with, with private sector companies and foundations who've, you know, also been really generous in helping to, to provide the resources needed to, to meet people's healthcare needs. What would you say is one of the largest expenses that you have? Is that your network of, of providers and staff, or is that that supplies or you know logistics, transport, things of that nature? Mm -hmm. Sure, it's uh, absolutely uh, staffing. Uh, it's the people who do the work. This is a you know healthcare is a people business, and and healthcare doesn't just happen in hospitals and health facilities. Healthcare happens with community health workers, um, you know, in people's villages. Um, it happens in schools. It happens, uh, you know at community centers. And so the people who do this work um, are absolutely instrumental and, and are the largest part of, of what it takes to be able to provide healthcare. Um, and then, yes, we do um, have quite a bit of, a, of you know, the medical supplies and the medical pharmaceuticals are also a big, big part of the work and trying to, to mobilize those and get those where they're needed most. And so Erica, the, uh, mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to have 
We're going to make an exception for one acronym uh, okay. in our podcast because, you know, it's called No Acronyms Allowed. Um, <laughs> but there, there's this thing, the ESF-8. Um, yes. And we're making the exception because it's it's pretty important. Will you explain that to us, what, what that is and why it's so important? Sure. So uh, ESF-8 is uh, part of the uh, federal, the U.S. federal response. It's the part of disaster response that specifically looks at how do we continue to provide healthcare and healthcare services in the aftermath of a disaster. Um, International Medical Corps um, works at times in disaster response uh, in the U.S. um, under what would be considered ESF-8. Uh, we are a partner um, to responders who who are working under that uh, particular response pillar or sector. Um, and in Florida, we work very closely with the Department of Health. Um, and so we are a partner with them and they can call upon us and, and have called upon us uh, to bring in our volunteers, to bring in, in supplies and, and to deploy uh, in the aftermath of a, of a disaster, most recently after Hurricane Ian. International Medical Corps delivers emergency health services to people affected by conflict, disaster, and disease, no matter where they are, no matter the conditions. They also train people in their communities, providing them with the skills they need to move their communities from relief to self-reliance. Show your support, spread the word on social media, and donate at internationalmedicalcorps.org backslash give. So Erica, um, you know, I, I love talking to people who I feel like could write a book about <laughs> their stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you know, this is from my childhood. My parents always said like, why do you ask so many questions? I just, I have this <laughs> natural curiosity. Um, so I want to get into sort of some of the nitty gritty on like just the the work that you guys do. Cause I think the, mm-hmm. like, the stories are, are, intense in a good way but but also impactful um but my overarching question is is this first like do you feel like you know disasters seem to happen community by community rarely Mm -hmm. are they global like the pandemic um Mm -hmm. but for those that are sort of community by community do you feel like communities are are getting better at being prepared for disasters um, or is it hard to prepare in a way that is meaningful and, and you have to have this outside entity that comes in with, with resources Um, are like, are we getting better at at preparing or, or not? It's a great question because I think we are getting better at preparing. I think people in their communities have a very uh, good understanding of what some of the risk is associated with disasters. I think that, you know, especially for here in the U.S. for some of these larger scale natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, to a certain extent, wildfires, I think. um, And, and, you know, I want to take the opportunity to say here, one of the greatest things about the work that we do um, and that I've had the privilege to do is that even when we see people on what may be the worst days of their lives, Mm. uh, we see the best possible parts of humanity. Mm. We see people who 
when tragedy strikes, go out of their way and not just our staff, I'm talking about the people who are affected, go out of their way to help their neighbors and their friends. And it's, it is a privilege um, to be able to see that and to be able to work with communities who are trying so hard to keep everybody safe and healthy. Um, I think the challenge for us here in the US and the challenge for us globally is that the situation is evolving so rapidly and the, the potential impact of whether it's climate-related weather events or uh, pandemics as, you know, we um, break down, you know, where people live and, and the environments around them and, and we get into increasingly rural areas or it's um, the global, um, you know, food crisis that's happening. The, the events are evolving so rapidly that it's, difficult and challenging to evolve along with them. And I think for us, what, what we call for is when we're thinking about preparedness and we're thinking about resilience is to really think about how do we build healthcare systems in our case that can pivot quickly, that can adapt and that can evolve uh, right. so that people and communities can be more resilient because it's not going to be a uh, one solution um you know, challenge anymore right, right. moving forward. Well, and I think, you know, not to belabor the point, but, mm -hmm. you know, what Sheila and I do in our day jobs with, with community health centers, yep. um, you know, there, there's, there's an incredible amount of effort put into emergency preparedness as we, as we mm -hmm. call it. Um, but you also, these are people that are also responsible for like just the regular day-to-day -day operations and in, in normal right. circumstances. And, and it, it amazes me how, how much we actually can prepare despite mm -hmm. everybody, you know, just being, you know, uh, trying to do their day jobs, um, mm -hmm. and, and being able to actually get some, some preparedness. Um, and yet, you can't predict how that preparedness is, is actually going to be needed or the, the sort of color of the, of the disaster right. itself. Um, but right. I mean, and that... I think, sorry, I was, I think that, you know, for, for us, because you can't predict you, you're absolutely right. You can't predict what the disaster is going to, is going to look like. And so, you know, one of the things that that we would call for and advocate for is is thinking about disaster preparedness in a bit of a different way, and thinking about it less as as the response to a certain event and more about uh, building resilience in a community. So, for us, we would say, you know, and I think there's been a a lot of attention drawn to this, particularly after COVID. You know, we need to invent invest in mental health because that that is what makes individuals and families more resilient when they have strong mental health care and can access that. You can't underestimate the impact of, of repetitive loss. The people who are most at risk from any kind of disaster um, continue to be at risk. So, you know, when you look at, um, you know, coastal communities in Florida, coastal communities in Puerto Rico. These are people and communities that are going to be affected over and over again. And each time it's more difficult to recover. And so things like investments in mental health keep families and communities in those situations more resilient. Hmm. Um, we would say invest in a healthcare workforce. You need more people providing healthcare so that when a disaster does strike, if part of the workforce is affected, there are other people 
to take their place and, you know, who can step in and, and help support that. So it's things like that, thinking, thinking about preparedness and resilience beyond the response to a specific disaster that, that we think is incredibly important. Right. So staying uh, on that same uh, topic of mental health mm-hmm. and, and well-being, obviously you have employees that are not only responding to these emergencies, they're experiencing these emergencies as well. Mm-hmm. You know, to Stephen's point, uh, from the health center perspective, we had health centers who had employees that were still out there helping patients, but they were still dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Ian themselves. So what are some mm-hmm. of the things that your organization does to, to help manage the well-being of your employees, not, not just the people in the areas that they're that they're in mm-hmm. servicing and providing services for, but actually their mental well-being, especially if they don't ever just stay in one area and maybe they move around and see different things. And that's mm-hmm. that's their world constantly seeing that thing that you described, people in the aftermath or the response to an emergency. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a important issue for us. It's a, it's a urgent issue. It's a growing issue. Um, we do a number of things. I think first and foremost, as simple as it sounds, we talk about it and we are on a very concerted effort as an organization to, to normalize it, to normalize talking about our colleagues, mental health and to being trying to work as an organization to, to instill within everybody that it is okay to talk about and that we need to also be supportive of our colleagues when we see that they may be in distress um, and call that out to them and, and let them know that, you know, what resources are available. Um, as far as, as resources that are available, um, you know, when you come to work for International Medical Corps, uh, whether as a volunteer or as a staff member, there is training on staff well-being and wellness that, that each individual does go through to understand how to manage your own stress, how to manage uh, your own well-being, uh, what resources the organization may have so that they're aware and that they know. Um, we um, are providing um, individual counseling. We're rolling that out across the organization so that uh, you know all of our staff members have access to individual counseling. And then ongoing uh, group training, training for our staff members um, really everywhere, but particularly in some of our highest stress environments on staff well-being, on wellness, on, on signs and indications uh, that uh, you may need to seek additional help and what those resources are. Um, and then we do also provide what what we call psychological first aid. Um, so staff is is trained in this themselves to be able to provide psychological first aid and understand how to talk to people who may be in crisis. But we're also trained to be able to provide that to each other. Um, you know, and and it's it's growing. We continue to invest in it. It's something that we continue to to look at. And I think alongside of that is you know also people's physical security, which is a big part of what we do as well, and and contributes to to mental to mental health and staff well-being. And we have a robust security operation at the organization. Every country where we work has its own security team and has its own security protocols. And that's supported at the headquarters level, uh, you know, with, with a global security team. Because at the end of the day, you know, earlier we talked about, you know, staff being the, the largest part of, of, of what we do. And it, it's the people that make our work possible. And so first and foremost, we want to keep our staff safe, healthy on the job so that they can help other people, but, but, but safe and healthy because, you know, they are also going through this crisis themselves. So what you just said, I'm sorry, Stephen, she just touched upon my, 
question about mm. security yeah. because I, I mean, I would probably be freaked out going, I'm especially mm -hmm. because you only see, let me preface this. I traveled a lot when I was mm -hmm. in college um, and it was very eye-opening for me when I even went to a country that we, as a, a would consider an ally, I went to Australia, spent mm -hmm. a few months there and they hated our president at the time and they were having mm -hmm. you know, protests and signs and and it was very eye-opening to understand that even in a country that is a an ally to us you go there and they don't like us <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and i can't imagine it would just be i would be terrified if someone said okay sheila we need your skill set we're going to drop you in the middle of you know uh, the middle east somewhere and uh, mm -hmm. you see all you see is what you see on the news um so that right. so that security you know answering that question i would I don't even know if that would <laughs> make me comfortable. Um, right. But right. I, I, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's a significant concern. It's a significant concern. I think, you know, one of the things about uh, International Medical Corps and our model and, and um, you know, we're not unique. A lot of other organizations do this as well, but it is because we have, we, we do work within communities and we spend a long time working with community leaders uh, working within the healthcare system itself, getting the buy-in of of the facilities on the ground, the, the country leadership, the community leadership, uh, you know, sitting in those community organizations and really talking about who we are and what we do, um, and getting their support. That is not, you know, it's not only good for our ability to implement our programs; it helps to keep our people safe because we are invited in. Um, and hiring local staff, um, you know, helps to, um, and having our staff be part of those communities helps to build that trust. It's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about trust. And so, um, you know, that model of investing in communities, uh, providing training, helping, helping communities implement their own solutions also helps keep our, our people safe and on the job. Um, supplementing that is of course our, our security operation you know and and in the kind of highest level security situations we're monitoring it on a you know day by day hour by hour minute by minute um you know security overview um whatever the situation demands and and there are times where we have to ask our 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 staff to shelter in place um there may be times where we have to move some of our staff um and and we are equipped and and you know, have the practices and the policies in place to do that. But I think, you know, it really, it, it is, um, again, I, I think as big as some of these problems and challenges seem and as, as challenging as some of the security environments can be, you know, I go back to what we said earlier, we get the privilege to see people um, really helping each other and really wanting to help those around them. And, and I think, you know, by and large, our security really is driven by the fact that we work within communities and we have the trust of the communities where, where we're privileged to serve. International Medical Corps delivers emergency health services to people affected by conflict, disaster, and disease, no matter where they are, no matter the condition. They also train people in their community, providing them with the skills they need to move their communities from relief to self-reliance. Show your support, spread the word on social media, and donate at internationalmedicalcorps.org backslash give. So Erica, I I, I don't want mm -hmm. to be a voyeur and, and I want to be respectful mm -hmm. of, of 
the the scenarios that that you guys are in um but i mm-hmm. wonder if you can like help give us an example of um of a disaster area that you've been in whether it's a natural disaster whether it's uh human made war um where you guys you know have have responded um, is there something that mm-hmm. sticks out to you that is a story that or uh, a, a scenario that that you won't forget anytime soon that that just sort of illustrates the the work that you guys do? Uh, yeah, I, I, a couple come to mind, and thank you for the question. Um, and I I have to say, you know, the the colleagues that I work with who are, who are out in the field responding to the disasters are among some of the um, really most heroic people that I've ever known. And, and, and certainly I would say, you know, on the planet, I mean, they just do incredibly heroic things every day. And, and the people in the communities where we work are right there with them. Um, You know, I would say one of the things that, that I think about often is, um, our our team in Ukraine. Uh, International Medical Corps was working in Ukraine, helping to provide uh, health healthcare services prior to the the outbreak of, of the current conflict. Um, and we had teams in Mariupol, and um, you know we we all saw the, the the ongoing footage of Mariupol. We saw um, what happened to people who were who were trapped there, who were essentially you know under siege. Um, and when our team members were able to get out, they came to our offices in other parts of Ukraine and they went back to work and they mm-hmm. went back to work to help other people who were also affected by this conflict. And I think, you know, that level of selflessness, that level of, of wanting to get the work done and to be there for others in your community, it, it's part of what then makes me want to come to work every day and continue to make that happen for them. Um, yeah. So I think that's something, and and, and I had the, the privilege of, of meeting some of those individuals last year and they're just incredibly, incredibly heroic to be able to, to, to go through something like that um, and to, to watch your city destroyed around you and to still be able to dig down and have the, the bravery and the fortitude to continue to give back to others. Um, and that's, that's the the great part about doing this job is getting to see people like that. Um, and that's a very, I think a very sort of um, large scale example. I think, um, sure. you know, on a smaller scale, some of the things that that stick with me um, that I, I talk about a lot are, are some of the things that I see here in the, in the U S um, you know, unfortunately I think it's um, no secret that, that some of the, the healthcare access challenges in the U.S. are as bad um, here, and, and particularly in some rural areas, as they are anywhere else in the world. And um, I heard a story, and I had the chance to meet with someone who had had been affected by the tornadoes in Mayfield, Kentucky, a couple of years ago. And the power went out, and uh, he was, you know, homebound in a wheelchair. Um, you know, using sort of at-home machines, um, CPAPs and other things, and was afraid that nobody was going to come for him and Mm -hmm. rode his wheelchair to a shelter, to an emergency shelter after the storms came through. And, you know, just knowing that there are people 
that are making those kinds of decisions, again, just means, you know, it brings home, I think, for, for us and for our teams, why we need to do this work and why we do need to bring in additional resources after a disaster and why we need to continue to talk about the needs for healthcare here in the U.S. and abroad, because everybody is somebody, someone, right? Everybody right. is important to somebody. There's somebody's mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, child, and every single person deserves the, the access to safety and to healthcare. Um, and as long as there's people who are willing to make those kinds of sacrifices, we're, we're going to be at the other end. We're going to be there when they yeah. show up. Well, and I think, um, you know, not to get too sentimental, but I, I think <laughs> though both of those examples highlight to me, one, the resilience of, of yep. a single human being, right. That, mm -hmm. that somehow we are able to push through really, really tough situations, but, but the second point being that that resilience is only possible when we do it together, right? When there's that yep, human, human connection um, and that, you know, the isolation that um, that comes in all forms, right? That, that we saw right. with, with the, with the pandemic um, right. that you see in, in war, that you see in disaster, um, that it's that isolation, right? That that uh, right. can often be the most uh, insidious part of of a disaster. But but when you couple mm -hmm. resilience with with connectivity, right, and and people right. being there for one another, um, all the supplies, all the logistics, all the all that stuff is good, right? Um, but mm -hmm. that's not going to do anything without that connection, that connectivity. That that, that right. um, that's heartwarming to to hear. So Erica, you had mentioned earlier, um, mm -hmm. you touched upon climate change. Um, yep. you know, how do, how did your organization see climate change as, um, uh, its impact on what it is that you do or the barriers that it creates for what you do? Uh, yeah, it, it definitely has an, an impact on our work and it, uh, you know, increasingly, increasingly so, um, and, and you know, there's certainly big numbers about there, particularly when we think about natural disasters. And I think this is, is where a lot of people think about the impact of climate change on health or disaster responses. You know, there's all kinds of stats, right? U.S. had 20 separate billion dollar weather and climate disasters in, in 2021 um, that killed hundreds of people and, you know, it was devastating to communities. Um, but, you know, climate doesn't change doesn't only right impact the planet, it impacts people and people's health. And something we're thinking more about is not only does it mean increased natural disasters, um, but it means increased uh, heat, which is going to bring around, you know, other health challenges, we're going to see more asthma, we're going to see more, you know, non communicable diseases, we're going to see increase increases in, in heat related illnesses and deaths. Um, we're going to see increases in, you know, vector-borne diseases, things that are, are you know, like malaria and, and Zika that are spread by mosquitoes because um, we're going to be seeing those insects in new climates where they hadn't been before. And so those are also going to have an impact on health. And that's something that we're also thinking about as well, that it's, you know, it is the um, large-scale 
potentially natural disasters that happen as, as climate and weather patterns change, but it's also these other kinds of, of impacts that are going to affect health. It's part of what's driving the, the nutrition uh, emergency that's happening globally right now. Um, you know, droughts, wildfires, um, you know, changes in, in, in rainy seasons, all of that is affecting you know, art, the availability of food and what we eat and what we can grow. And so it's going to have, you know, an exponential impact on the work that we do. And it's certainly something that we're increasingly thinking about and how we prepare for that. One of the phrases that, um, you know, one of, of our colleagues uses this idea of, of permacrisis and, not to overstate it, but just the fact that, you know, when you're looking at something like a global nutrition challenge where there's hundreds of millions of people that don't have access to enough food, what does that mean, um, you know, for, for healthcare globally? Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's certainly affecting how we plan for and respond to emergencies and how we plan for and respond to providing healthcare. It's so amazing to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> like, the things that you don't really think, um, about outside of your own personal environments, you know, clearly mm -hmm. the heat we understand here in Florida very well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was, we used to have a month of weather where we were all be able to take a breath and relax and enjoy mm -hmm. being outside yeah. without mosquitoes, but now it's like a day or two. So yep. we, we were right. definitely right. seeing that impact uh, firsthand. Mm -hmm. So Erica, I know we're, we're running short mm -hmm. on time, um, you mm -hmm. know, and I don't want to end on a, on a, a bad note, so we'll we'll make it a positive sure. uh, somehow. <laughs> uh, but what what in your job day to day? What what keeps mm -hmm. you up at night right now? As, as you think about um, sort of both short and long term um, planning or challenges, mm -hmm. um, you know, is there one thing that is keeping you up at night more than than anything else? For me, what I think and and I'll. I'll, I'll take a sort of bit of a circuitous path here, but, you know, I've, I've done this work in different aspects for, uh, you know, for a few decades now, um, you know, worked in sort of international disaster response, international healthcare. Um, you recently have to have, my role has taken on a greater focus in the U S and something I do think a lot about is what we were talking about earlier is the fact that there are places right here in the United States, you know, the wealthiest country with the most resources where accessing healthcare is as difficult and challenging as anywhere else I have seen it. Mm. Um, where there are uh, people who, particularly in rural areas, as hospitals are consolidated or closed, you know, are really challenged to, to access specialized care. They're facing challenges um, you know, getting to the doctor, finding childcare so that they can go to the doctor, um, getting, you know, ongoing services. If there's something that requires a level of specialized care, you know, having to travel hours to get it. Um, so it's a, it's a big challenge. And I think it's, um, it's something that, that was exposed during COVID, but, but I think when you see it and, and you kind of talk to people who, who are so challenged about accessing care, it really drives it home. And so we think a lot about that. Um, I think, though, there's also a tremendous amount of opportunity, and, and I think we've developed some fantastic partnerships that are really helping us to start addressing it from, from where we're able to, and we're doing some um, really uh, starting to, to launch some really great projects that are, are get, you know, really getting into, you know, we're not here to come in and, and take over a healthcare system or tell people how to do their work, but we're here to help communities 
you know, increase access to care by, by advancing their own priorities. And so it means we get to partner with really great organizations. We partner, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, that we partner with a number of, of community health clinics in Florida who are fantastic partners to us, who are really thinking about what kinds of things they need to, to help communities access care um, all over the state. And we're thrilled to be able to, to partner with them to help in, in ways that we can, you know, that we can do that. Um, you know, we're looking at um, programs in, in some cities across the U.S. about how we provide healthcare and transitional housing facilities, you know, for people who uh, may be experiencing homelessness, you know, but are in temporary housing. How do we make sure they get healthcare? Um, how do we make sure, you know, people in, in rural areas can get their pharmaceuticals delivered, you know, their medicines need, if they if they need them? So that I think is is the upside, right? There's huge challenges, but then there's huge opportunities for partnerships. There's huge opportunities to work with local communities to really accelerate their own solutions and and you know bring healthcare back out into the communities where it happens. I you know I said it earlier, and and I think it's so true. Healthcare doesn't just happen in hospitals and health clinics. It happens everywhere. It happens in schools. It happens at work. And you know we're thrilled to to be thinking about that in new ways here in the U.S. as well. That's great. Yeah, prevention is definitely key and we have to get better mm -hmm. as as to your point earlier you know being an industrialized country with a wealth of resources it is it is always eye-opening to see that there are so many individuals that just don't get the access to any type of service mm -hmm. that they need behavioral health preventative um yep. to your point pharmaceuticals um and on a on a note um, off mm -hmm. of that, so do you find your your organization shifting to a health policy organization too? Do you feel like you guys do a lot of advocacy work in regards to these issues as well, especially here in the U.S.? Um, uh, we're not, not. No, I don't think we're we're we certainly work in the context of of the health policy, and I think you know. Um, the whatever the policy is certainly impacts how how we're able to do our job. Um, but for us, you know, we really focus on the implementation and the solutions that the communities want to want to put in place. So to the extent that we're sharing experiences um, and bringing to light the, the realities of, of people here in the U.S. or globally and, and what access to health care means. Um, certainly, we see part of our, our role as that. Um, but we do stay out of out of the policy conversations, um, you know, at sort of that, that higher level, we're really focused. There's others who are, who are better at that. Um, we're happy to, to provide some experiences that can inform that, but we really look at, you know, how do we, how do we help communities implement? How do we help communities um, and organizations, you know, increase access to healthcare and, and help families get the healthcare that they need when they need it. That's probably a very smart play in that, not getting right. <laughs> in politics of it. <laughs> For sure. Sheila, Sheila's <laughs> jealous of you. <laughs> I'm like, take me with you. Take me with you. Right. <laughs> well, Erica, thank you. are probably much better at it than we would be. <laughs> thank you. It's been a thank you for a, being with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're you're doing amazing work and and uh thank it's, you. It's you an honor are. to hear your stories. So yeah, absolutely. Thank and you. I I'm, you know, from the communications marketing side, some of the visuals mm -hmm. are, are just impactful and and on their mm -hmm. own tell stories and i think it's amazing what your organization does and i'm just glad you have you. an opportunity to tell us and our audience more about it 
Well, thank you so much. It's it's really uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's it's uh, great to have the opportunity to share. And and you know, as I as I said, we're just really. Um, honored to be able to, to partner with organizations in Florida doing this great work and, and organizations around, you know, the country and the world. So thank you.